Welcome to the Called Out Cafe podcast. I'm your host, Doug Hooley. This is our third season of the Called Out Cafe and uh, like the fourth series that we've done. The current series is called Leaving the Church to Follow Jesus. It's based on my latest book that's titled the same as this series. That book is available in paperback, hardcover, and ebook on Amazon.com. Well, this week, I was interviewed by a guy named Rick Dancer on his podcast slash videocast called Get Real with Rick Dancer. You can Google that and it'll come right up. He was interviewing me about this book, Leaving the Church to Follow Jesus. So far, as of this morning, it's been viewed over 1,100 times. I got to tell you that people are coming out of the woodworks who have left the church to follow Jesus that are finding this topic very cathartic and something that they can really relate to. That includes Rick Dancer. He talks about how the book, which he's reading, is clarifying his own experience. One of the reasons I wrote the book was for that exact reason. I also wrote it for those who are still attending conventional churches that are struggling with their thoughts about leaving or staying. And I wrote it for those committed to staying, that they may do so with their eyes wide open about what they're participating in, that they're able to separate out what it means to follow Jesus from the cultural traditions that they're participating in. Anyway, you might find it interesting to see how the book is affecting somebody and the questions that it's raising. Once again, that was Get Real with Rick Dancer. Now, if you remember, in the last episode, we started into this survey of the New Testament on what it has to say about the gathering of the called out, the ecclesia. We left off in the Gospel of Matthew, so that's where we're going to pick it up today. This is Matthew chapter 6, and this has to do with parading religion before men, something that a lot of churches, a lot of pastors want to try to get us to do. (laughs) Amongst the other points that Jesus makes in Matthew chapter 6, he establishes this principle of not making a show of religion, whether it be good works giving money, praying, or fasting. Those things are to be done in secret. Such things are only to take place between the one doing them and God. We never read of the early ecclesia drawing attention to themselves by putting on a pre-planned, self-produced religious show, marching to demonstrate their religious passion and commitment, or putting up billboards stating what form their religious takes when they assemble. You never see an ecclesia trying to attract people to their assembly based on all the religious activities they were engaged in, such as supporting social services, their Christmas celebration, or sending missions to aid a foreign land. Such a marketing campaign is anti-biblical. Moving on to Matthew chapter 7, verse 6. It outlines a principle of evangelism, and we'll talk about other scripture that are related to that. It's in Matthew chapter 7 that believers are instructed by Jesus not to, quote, cast their pearls to swine, unquote. According to the law of Moses, swine are considered unclean animals. Jesus' use of the term is symbolic for unbelieving Gentiles non-Jews, who are also considered unclean 
according to the Mosaic law. This was to say, keep the things which are set apart for God, set apart for God. Don't indiscriminately toss them to unbelievers. The ecclesia is one of the things which is set apart for God. And of course, holy is uh, means set apart. Keep the things that are holy set apart for God. While understanding that everyone needs to hear the gospel and be given the opportunity to respond to it, those who make up the ecclesia must be careful to recognize the difference in relationships between those who are outside of the ecclesia. As exclusive as that might sound, the called out one must use wisdom and rely upon the Holy Spirit when casting spiritual truths, even the gospel, to unbelievers, those who Jesus is calling swine. The Gospel of Matthew, chapter 7, verse 13, provides further insight, cautions, and what our expectations should be as we engage in evangelism. This is a huge and sensitive topic near and dear to many evangelical Christians' hearts. This is what that scripture says, Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. While Jesus, at the end of Matthew chapter 9, says, quote, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few, unquote, he does not go on to say that every member of the called out, therefore, should take up his sickle and reap. Jesus does say that his disciples should, quote, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest, unquote. Now, while some zealous pastors who may be called to evangelism themselves preach that we should all take up our sickles and attempt to reap the harvest, it's important to notice what Scripture says. Harvesting, or evangelism, is a specific calling. Now, we should all be ready and willing to participate in the harvest if we are called by the Holy Spirit to do so. But the plain scriptural truth is that we are not all regularly called to do so. The book of Ephesians chapter 4 verse 11 says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers. You are about as likely to be cast in the role as an apostle, a prophet, or pastor, or teacher as you are an evangelist, according to this scripture. Well, reaching out to the lost and teaching them in the ways of Jesus are just two of the many functions of the ecclesia, but not the only or even the greatest of the functions. The Lord of the harvest will provide the qualified and exact number of harvesters at the exact place and time to get the job done. Can you imagine if there was a harvest to be accomplished, what mayhem would ensue and how out of control it would be if everyone in the community showed up to harvest a field of wheat. 
They would be trouncing it all over the place. There would be people standing around not knowing what to do. There would be too many there to effectively and efficiently conduct a harvest. Well, additionally, some, not everyone, will be called by the Lord of the harvest to act as evangelists, such as in the case of Paul's protege, Timothy. Timothy was a student and an apostle, not of Jesus, but an apostle of Paul, meaning that he was sent out by Paul to represent what Paul taught. Paul recognized what Timothy's calling was. It was to be an evangelist. In his second letter to Timothy, Paul wrote this, As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. That's 2 Timothy 4, verse 5. The mistake that many people make in their devotionals is to apply everything the Bible says to themselves personally. So, when they read Paul's words to Timothy, they think that they, like Timothy, have a calling to be an evangelist. Well, if that's true, then we should each have Judas Iscariot's calling to betray Jesus. If that's true then we should each have a calling to deny Jesus three times like Peter. And if that way of reading Scripture is true and correct, then we were each appointed by Jesus to be the apostle to the Gentiles like Paul. And here's some news. We were not. Jesus may have told certain individuals to spread the gospel, but Jesus also told them not to spread the gospel. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 20, we read of Jesus, quote, strictly, unquote, telling his disciples not to tell anyone that he was the Messiah. We see Jesus telling people after they had been healed by him to, quote, tell no one, unquote, about it. After he met with Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus told his disciples not to tell anyone what had happened until after his death and resurrection. Jesus was in tune with the timing of God's will, and he still is. He never indiscriminately proclaimed the gospel or encouraged others to do so. Well, there's a lot to say about why Jesus told his disciples to keep a lid on things. It seems to us now, so counterintuitive, you know, in light of the Great Commission, so counterintuitive given the priorities of evangelical Christians today. The disciples were likely anxious to rush ahead and spread the gospel. Yet, what may turn an unbelieving heart cold one day may be received with grateful understanding the next day after the Holy Spirit has prepared their heart. Suffice it to say, it's the Holy Spirit that woos those whom the Father has elected to salvation. And it's Jesus that makes salvation possible. I know we like to think of ourselves in there somewhere, but that, the Holy Spirit, the Father, and Jesus, they are the ones that make salvation possible. Although they may use people to bring about their will, it is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit that salvation is dependent upon, not the ecclesia. Jesus, the apostles, and the biblical authors all knew that very well. 
Paul was aware that even though it was his calling to proclaim the gospel, that his actions had nothing to do with those who were appointed to eternal life. After those in Antioch listened to the words of Paul and Barnabas, Luke tells us that, quote, as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed, unquote. Please get this. Without appointment or election, authentic belief will not occur. Now, also please get this. Likewise, if one is appointed to salvation, there is nothing anyone can do to stop it. If you've been called to be an evangelist, please do so with all your heart. Fulfill your role in the ecclesia. But if not, as Peter tells us, we all still need to be ready to give an answer about our faith. But there is no reason to feel guilty about not going door to door for Jesus or standing on a campus and handing out pamphlets. Well, enough said about that for now. Matthew chapter 7, verse 15, warns us about false teachers within the ecclesia. False teaching within the church has been a problem ever since people have gathered in the name of Jesus. The principle is that of constantly being on guard for deception, both within the church and from the outside. No level of relaxation in this regard is acceptable. Matthew 7.15 is the first of many warnings found in the gospel regarding false teachers who are found among the elect, but there are many such warnings found throughout the Old and New Testament. Watching out for false doctrine is addressed in the New Testament more than any other principle. It's addressed more than unity, more than spreading the gospel, and more than loving one another, believe it or not. The responsibility of the called-out one is to watch out for false teaching and false teachers. It's to reject the teaching when they recognize it and turn away from it. But what's to be done about the ones teaching false doctrines? According to Paul, after they've been identified, false teachers should be avoided. Pretty simple. Paul didn't hesitate in naming false teachers to Timothy. For example, Demas, <laughs> it just, you know, it, it strikes me, uh, how would you like to be on this list in the Bible, the most read book in the world in history, and your name is on here as someone who is a false prophet? Anyway, Demas, Phygelus, Hermonogenes, <laughs> Hermonogenes, Hymenius, Alexander, and Philetus, they all made I'm sorry about massacre and the pronunciation there, but they all made Paul's infamous list of false teachers. What's that say to us? Figure out who they are, identify them, and treat them appropriately. Peter had harsh things to write about the spreaders of false doctrines, pointing out false teachers who were depraved and bringing destructive heresies into the ecclesia. Peter said that their fate will be the same as some of the worst unrighteous characters found in biblical history. Peter had simple advice for building immunity towards false teaching. It's to be actively on guard for deception and continue to increase in knowledge of Jesus through the study of Scripture. You can read about that in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14-18. to 18. On two different occasions, 
Jesus gave the advice of leaving false disciples alone when they are recognized. In one case, he likened them to plants, (laughs) whom his father did not plant. One day, he said, they'll be rooted up. He compared false teachers to blind guides and those listening to them as the blind, stating, quote, And if the blind lead the blind, both of them will fall into the pit, unquote. That is from some place in the Bible. Yes, Matthew chapter 15, verses 12 to 14. In the parable of the wheat and the tares, Jesus essentially said the same thing. He said, let the weeds, or the tares, grow among the wheat. God will cause it to be sorted out at harvest time. That's from Matthew chapter 13, verses 24 to 30 and 36 to 43. The Apostle Paul gives additional advice regarding those within a local body of ecclesia. Now, it's not conflicting advice, but advice in harmony with what Jesus has said. His advice pertains to those who you not only run across, you know, out on the street or wherever in your your life, who claim to be Christians, but they have been accepted into a local body, the same body as you're in, associated with, as a brother or a sister in Christ. For those who persist, that, that fit that criteria, and they persist in their sin, which definitely includes teaching false doctrine, they are to be publicly rebuked in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. That's a quote. Persisting in sin implies that such a person has been given a chance to repent of their ways before being subjected to public humiliation, making an example of them. The responsibility of teachers is to prepare their fellow called-out ones by teaching the truth, so that they may know the difference between what's biblical and what's not. Secondly, it's appropriate for a teacher to make the called-out aware of false doctrines that are being taught and why they are false. We're to have one another's back within the ecclesia. Paul's letter to the Galatians is a great example of pointing out the anti-biblical errors of those who have been attempting to teach the Galatians things that conflicted with the truth. In that letter, Paul was direct and anything but gentle, but that was the Apostle Paul. He had the title of Apostle, I don't. Chances are, you don't either. Well, while he may not always have done so as an Apostle, He encouraged others to always be courteous, gentle, and not quarrelsome. Well, let's keep going here. Let's move on to Matthew chapter 10. We're going to look at verses 5 to 14 regarding support of traveling evangelists. This starts to get into another real sensitive topic about giving, giving money. Well, at one point in his ministry, Jesus sent out disciples to witness to the lost sheep of the house of Israel, who were specifically not Gentiles or Samaritans. Among his instructions to his disciples were two different points that concerned compensation while on the road doing the work of Jesus. He also gave part of the same instructions to 72 disciples who, at a different time, he appointed and sent out. First, after telling the disciples what to do on his behalf, which was preach, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, and cast out demons, he told them not to expect or receive any compensation for what they did, specifically saying, you received without paying, 
give without pay. Jesus had imparted not only the truth of the gospel, but the ability to perform miracles to them, free of charge. These abilities were to serve as credentials, giving them credibility to authoritatively preach about the kingdom of heaven. Why should they be able to charge people for such abilities that they were essentially borrowing from Jesus, or for preaching about things that they had been taught by Him for free? According to Jesus, they should not. Yet, Jesus also instructed the disciples to take nothing of value with them to support themselves while they were on their journey. Rather, as they traveled, he told them to depend on the generosity of others for room and board. Jesus said, quote, For the laborer deserves his food. Unquote. Clearly, in the case where evangelists are away from home and unable to provide for their essential needs, such as food and shelter, Jesus says it's appropriate to rely on and accept the hospitality of others. While Paul typically provided for himself through his trade, even when he was out on the road, his writings also support the practice of accepting assistance. Please understand clearly, though, this is not receiving a salary or like regular support from some church. This is foods and sustenance and shelter that they're accepting, that Jesus is saying it's okay to accept. Whereas the practice of supporting traveling transitory evangelists is entirely biblical here, that's the point made here, the Gospels are silent on providing any such support for those who are part of the local ecclesia, who can provide for themselves while at home. You know what I'm talking about. talking about pastors, preachers that are stand at the head of the church, at the pulpit. After all, like Paul supported himself through his occupation of something like tent making, we're not sure exactly what, uh, how it should be translated, the disciples appear to have gone back to fishing after the resurrection. No one in the primal ecclesia, the first, the early church, the early ecclesia, expected to make a living from the gospel. That's something that we're superimposing over that period of time, which is common now. The guidance of the Synoptic Gospels, the first four books of the New Testament, provide on this topic is that, quote, you received without paying, give without pay, unquote. Now we're going to be addressing compensation for the clergy uh, on down the road as we reach Scripture on that specific topic. But for now, let's move on to Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 to 8, concerning keeping the Sabbath. The fourth commandment says that the Hebrews were to keep the Sabbath holy. Remember, the Ten Commandments were written to God's chosen people, the Jews, his ethnic chosen people, who are still his chosen people. As far as a nation goes, they're the only nation that has been chosen by God from amongst all the other nations. God was not expecting anybody else, the Gentiles at the time, to follow his commandments. Following his commandments was a part of being his called-out special people. Well, holy, as far as keeping the Sabbath holy, holy means that it was to be set apart. So this holy day meant that 
the Sabbath was to be separate from amongst all the other days. It was to be a day when people, like the Creator, rested on the seventh day after laboring for six days. They were supposed to cease their labor and rest. The Sabbath begins on Friday at sundown and ends on Saturday at sundown. Yet Jesus was accused of breaking the Sabbath by doing what technically was considered to be work. He told his disciples it was okay to literally just grab a snack. (laughs) In the end, he declared himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath, giving him the right to say what is and what is not appropriate regarding the Sabbath. In doing so, he revealed that God made the Sabbath for man and not man for the Sabbath. The Pharisees Jesus was addressing and those like them had turned men into slaves of keeping all the many man-made laws pertaining to the Sabbath that were over and above God's law. This placed a great burden and inconvenience on the people, while all along the Sabbath, according to Jesus, was supposed to be a day for their benefit. Sunday is not the Sabbath. Those who attempt to superimpose the church over the top of Judaism struggle to make a case that Sunday, the day the Lord rose from the dead on, has become the new Sabbath for Christians. That is an entirely unbiblical concept. There are no scriptures indicating any of the very first ecclesias ever regularly gathered on Sundays. There is no direct theological case to be made from Scripture supporting Sunday is the new Sabbath. On the other hand, there are Scripture passages that document devout non-Jews were in the habit of meeting on Saturdays. The Apostle Paul continued to worship on the Sabbath. In the book of Acts, he's recorded to have visited several synagogues on Saturdays. Of course, when he did, he shared the gospel with those in attendance always tying in Jesus with the Old Testament. He was using visiting the synagogues as an opportunity to have an audience to hear what he wanted to say. There was no command in the Old Testament for Jews to gather on the Sabbath. You hear that? No command to gather on the Sabbath. No requirement to go to the temple or attend any synagogue on that day. There is no dated evidence of synagogues prior to the 3rd century B.C. The regular custom of attending a synagogue, which the word synagogue means an assembly, so it was just an assembly of Jews, that didn't begin until after the destruction of Solomon's temple in 586 B.C. That was at least 650 years after God gave the law through Moses. So people who are trying to connect Regular church attendance with what the Jews did, well, that didn't even start until 650 years after God made the law through Moses, and Moses said, we have to keep the Sabbath holy. There is no biblical information that Sunday is any more of a special day than any other day of the week. No command or even suggestion found in Scripture that the ecclesia should meet on Sunday. In fact, Paul argues against any day being more special than any other. Meeting regularly on Sunday is an unbiblical practice. Although it may be a good or practical thing to do, 
it is not mandated or even hinted at in Scripture. The fact that we do so is based on tradition, not the New Testament. Now, on to Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 to 50, concerning what we'll call the family of Jesus. Jesus was sitting with his disciples. He was informed that his physical, natural mother, Mary, and his brothers had just arrived at his location. When that happened, Jesus pointed to his disciples. You know, it's like now he's pointing to all these disciples sitting in front of him. And he said, quote, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and my sister and my mother. Okay, so he was pointing to these people that were sitting in front of him in contrast to the people that had just showed up outside, his mom and his brothers. The called out one of Jesus, the called out ones of Jesus, all who are called out, they are his ecclesia, who are recognized as his family. Surely, his family is to function not as an organization or an institution, but as the son of God's family, with all the familiarity, the sharing of burdens, the love, the respect, and loyalty due within a functional family. That's the relationship we should have with Jesus. That's the relationship we should have with each other. Before we move on, here's a few scripture references if you're taking notes. Romans chapter 12, verses 10 to 13 talks about that. Ephesians 2, 19. 1 Timothy 5, 1 to 2. 1 John 1, 12 to 13. And chapter 3, 1 to 24. So let's talk about one more passage from Matthew uh, before we get into a, uh, a really big topic uh, starting off next, next time. This is from Matthew chapter 15, verses 1 to 9, and we're talking about tradition versus serving God. Many people have defended practices in the church by stating that long-held traditions can be trusted. So, what's the danger of relying on tradition and going beyond Scripture, which technically is unbiblical? What's the danger of that in how we approach corporate worship? What are the risks when we create doctrine that's based on philosophy and reason rather than God's Word? Jesus cites the prophet Isaiah when he equates those who hold the traditions and man-made doctrine with those who are only honoring God with their lips rather than their hearts. This is what Matthew chapter 15 verse 9 says, And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Jesus sums up the problem of human church institutions, which rely on tradition and man-made doctrines. Their worship is in vain. This serves as a great caution against worshiping together according to cultural traditions. Man, I could not write an entire book and say it any more clearly than this. It's a warning about cultural traditions rather than operating according to scriptural principles. According to the scripture we're looking at here, defending the doctrines and traditions of men, which the church today is fraught with, as though they are doctrines supported by scripture, is an anti-biblical practice. When I hear people arguing about, yeah, we need to continue to operate as a church, this is the problem with that. Pretty simple. 
before we go here, I want to tell you about a special edition uh, of this podcast that's that you'll be seeing coming up on the uh, on your favorite podcast platform. It's going to be, I think, a three-part mini-series on, believe it or not, the Flat Earth Theory. It's uh, called The Flat Earth, The Debunking of the Flat Earth, or something like that. Then anyway, uh, I had a friend forward me a link to a video which supports the Flat Earth Theory, and I didn't think I was going to have time to do it, and I really don't. <laughs> but uh, I've been waking up really early in the morning, and so I'd get up and I'd watch this video, and I took copious notes, and I wrote a 32-page response to this video on uh, addressing all of the points that are made in there. And, you know, it is so oh, grossly unsubstantiated <laughs> that it's hard to put in words. That's why it took me 32 pages to do so. Anyway... I've come to uh, think that the best way to address this um, is was just to address it in a series of three podcasts and uh, publish my 32-page paper. So um, I, it's not going to replace this regular podcast series. I'm doing it in addition to this podcast series. So you'll be seeing that coming up uh, in the very near future. Anyway, uh, that's where we're going to leave it for this week. Next time... We will be starting off with Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 to 19, talking about the only basis for the existence of the ecclesia. But until then, God bless you and Maranatha. Thanks for joining me today. Until my next podcast, you can follow me on Facebook by going to the Doug Hooley Ministries page. I'm on Twitter at, at Doug H. Ministries, and I'm on Instagram at Doug Hooley Ministries. Find out about what I'm working on and read some of my blogs at DougHooley.com or email me at Doug at DougHooley.com That's Doug at D-O-U-G-H-O-O-L-E-Y dot com. I'd love to hear from you. This has been the Called Out Cafe. So long and God bless. Mm-hmm.